please uh, join me this morning in Jonah chapter 3. And uh, as we sing about the thrice holy God, I bet it, it's going to be a bit jarring to hear how Jonah speaks to this God. As you remember in Jonah chapter 3, Jonah was called for the second time. The first time he ran away, and the second time he is called again to God. And the word of the Lord comes to Jonah in chapter 3 and tells him to go again to the city of Nineveh and to preach there to the people in Nineveh. And this time, Jonah listens to the Lord and goes and preaches. And the results are fantastic. He's successful. Overwhelming success. It's unbelievable. His sermon's only eight words long, and the whole city repents. <laughs> it's fantastic. Sackcloth and ashes on everybody. The king is off his throne. Even the animals are wearing sackcloth, fasting. And at the end of this wonderful, marvelous revival, as these people are turning to the God we just sang about, the holy, holy, holy. Here we pick up in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw, this is God speaking about the Ninevites repenting. When God saw what they did, the repentance how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah greatly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my own country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what should become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plants. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he says, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came to being in the night and perished in a night. 
And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than a hundred and twenty thousand persons who do not know their right hand from their left hand, and also much cattle? It's a shocking passage, shocking end. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Heavenly Father, we we come again to you to seek truth from your word, and we pray this morning that you feed us from your word. Father, help us to, to grow into your image by what we see here. Help us to see your glory. Help us to see the truth about ourselves. We ask that you expose the sin in our lives. We ask that you point us to Christ. We ask that you encourage us, that you grow us, that you use these words to to make us disciples and humble servants of you. Guide us this morning, we pray in your name. Amen. So as we uh, come to the end of um, our time, at least with me and Jonah, um, it feels like it's gone fairly quickly. Um, I'm also kind of sad to see it go. I hope that you've been encouraged by what we've gone through over the last three and now here this morning. Um, but even as even as we're moving on, I don't know about you, but I have often, especially in this passage, I, I've, I've come to be a little bit fond of Jonah because I see a little bit of myself in this man. And, you know, I was... We by we're in the Sunday school this morning with the junior high and high school. We're going through the book of we're going through the Old, Old Testament minor prophets. And this morning, I just asked them a simple question. I I just asked them, you know, when was the last time you pouted? And it was an interesting question. I I would ask you parents, but <laughs> well, you know. But it was an interesting question, and and so it was interesting to hear the responses. And then we talked about. When was the last time you threw a temper tantrum? And it was interesting to to hear the responses. But this morning, we're going to see one of God's prophets do the same thing. And and, uh, we pray that that this morning that we will see that a bit of ourselves in Jonah. And then we also, as as we look at this story about Jonah, hopefully we'll realize that this story isn't about Jonah at all. It's about our great and wonderful God and his gracious mercy and his abundant loving kindness, even for us rebellious sinners. So as we look at this passage this morning, we're just going to divide it up into two sections. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5, and that's when Jonah prays to God. And then we're going to look at verses 6 through 11, and that's when God responds to Jonah. So starting with Jonah's prayer to God in verses 1 through 5, he begins by, it sets us up. As we enter this chapter, Jonah 4, Jonah doesn't behave in the way that one would expect him to. After being part of one of the greatest revivals in, in the history of the world, Jonah is not happy. 
From the very first verse, we see that this, this chapter is not going to go in the direction that we would expect it to after such a great success. After it appeared that God had relented from the disaster that he promised to show up or give to Nineveh, Jonah leaves the city hoping, hoping that the repentance ends up being shallow and that God will find a way to destroy these Ninevites in spectacular fashion. But as it becomes clear that Nineveh is going to survive another day, Jonah becomes exceedingly displeased and angry at God for the mercy that he has shown to this city. The Hebrew word, it's it's an interesting word because it it carries the idea of of being kindled to anger. It, It carries the idea of being hot with anger. And I am sure that the writer of this text intends to develop that connection throughout this passage. But unlike chapter 1 where Jonah flees from God and runs away and refuses to pray, here Jonah confronts God for behaving in a way that Jonah detests. The anger that Jonah feels, he goes back to justify his actions from fleeing from God. He said, I knew you were like this. That's why I ran away. I knew you were going to do this. And so he affirms the need for Nineveh to bear the guilt that Jonah is sure they have. And he accuses God of being too soft on sin. Jonah is very zealous for God's righteous wrath. And Jonah goes on to accuse God of being gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to smile or at least smirk at it when you, when you think about what he's saying. It's interesting, as I've been, been reading through Jonah, I came across a book of poetry written by Thomas Carlyle, published in 1968. I don't know if you're, you're probably familiar with it, most of you. But in this, in this book of poetry, uh, Carlyle goes through all of Jonah and he writes a series of poems. Most of them are rather edgy, but I think they capture the way that Jonah feels in his anger towards God. Let me read one of them to you briefly. It's called The Generosity of God. Carlyle writes, The generosity of God displeased Jonah exceedingly And he slashed with angry prayer at the graciousness of the Almighty. I told you so, he screamed. I knew what you would do, you dirty forgiver. You bless your enemies and show kindness to those who despitefully use you. I would rather die than live in a world with a God like you. And don't try to forgive me either. I think Carlyle captures Jonah's sentiment in this poem. Jonah clearly does not understand the character of God or the relationship between God and Israel. It's it's almost as if Jonah saw himself and the people of Israel of being a different quality than all of the nations around them. Because of this special covenant with their God, it, it almost meant to Jonah that God loved their nation more than everybody else. But Jonah failed to remember that that God's promise to Abraham was that through his offspring, all 
of the nations of the earth would be blessed. And as Jonah stands, looking at the wicked, sinful Ninevites, turning in repentance to God, he can't understand how God would forgive such wickedness. It's revolting to him. And he would rather not live than be in a world where God treats sinners with such grace. His conclusion? It is better to die. While some might accuse Jonah at this point of being melodramatic, we should remember that he already attempted to die in chapter 1. Throw me overboard, he says. Splash, and he goes over. But as we think of of Jonah, maybe he's serious at this point, or maybe he's just being dramatic. Maybe he's attempting to get God's attention. But let's just take for a minute and just see, like, I, 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 for myself, I just need to know why, why is he thinking like this? What are the factors in his life that, that caused him to come to this conclusion about God's gracious mercy? And so there are two factors. Let's just, we'll look at them briefly. The first one is, God made a promise to Jeroboam. And as you remember, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he was the first king of the northern kingdom. Right? He was king from 931 to 910. And as you remember, Solomon's son Rehoboam did not inherit his father's wisdom. Right? And, so, and so from Rehoboam, half the kingdom was taken from him. And even though Jeroboam had received the half of the kingdom, the northern kingdom from God, Jeroboam was worried that the people in the northern kingdom would, would still head down to Jerusalem to do their sacrifices there. And so in order to, to keep the people from heading down to Jerusalem and, and leaving the northern kingdom and, and being influenced by the people in Jerusalem, he, Jeroboam set up two centers of false worship, one in the southern part of the kingdom and one in the northern part. That way everyone would have easy access to their rituals. And he instituted one in, one in Bethel, and one in Dan. And, and in his efforts to keep his kingdom under his control, he institutes pagan worship throughout the northern kingdom of Israel. And for those of you who are familiar with your Old Testament, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, becomes an epithet for all of the kings who walk in the ways of wickedness, who, who worship idols. And it's this... Jeroboam that receives a prophecy. And you remember Ahijah, the prophet. And in 1 Kings 14, the prophet or uh, Jeroboam's wife comes to Ahijah, and Ahijah tells him this. Moreover, the Lord will raise himself up a king from Israel, who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today. And henceforth, the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water, and root up Israel out of the, out of the good land that he has given to his fathers, and scatter them beyond the Euphrates. Because they have made their ashram, provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he had sinned and amazed Israel to sin. And so you can see in this passage that the prophet gives a prophecy that a, a, a nation beyond the Euphrates will come and take away the northern kingdom because of the sins of Jeroboam. You guys remember that Nineveh's just on the other side. Uh, you, you know that. The second thing that, that we need to look briefly at is the threat of the Assyrians. So there's this prophecy like rattling around in Jonah's mind. And, and then also there's this threat of the Assyrians. And as we've 
we've talked about before. It's, it's hard to get into the brutality of the Assyrians because we have first through whatever grade in here. And, but the Assyrians used their torture as a, as a, a brutal means of psychological warfare. They, they took their torture to an art form. And along with sword and spear, they wielded it as a weapon. And for those of you in this digital age, you can easily tour all of the different places where their remains are, um, where are still there. Because as you remember, they, they would depict their brutalities on these big stone reliefs and on big uh, obelisks. You have these monuments to the, the brutality of what they would do to their enemies. Things like they would, as, after they captured a city, they would pile up all of the heads of the people they slaughtered just outside the gate in the big pile. Uh, they might, um, they have one method of impaling people on long sticks and sticking them up as a kind of a pre-crucifixion. Right? They would skin people alive just out of range of the city that they were besieging. It was brutal, the things that they did. And the atrocities of the Assyrians were well known throughout the world. And they're well documented. So for those of you who want to look, I would encourage you to do so. I did for a little bit until I got sick to my stomach. But not only that, the threat of this possible invasion, the brutality of these Assyrians was enough to even, for even King Jehu, you remember King Jehu, he even sent a, he, 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 there was a threat of an invasion. He's like, no, we'll just send some stuff. Actually, you can, if you want to see, it's the Black Obelisk has a depiction of Jehu um, giving tribute to Shalmaneser III. And you can see the one picture of a Judean king giving homage, bowing before the feet of this Assyrian king and bringing tribute so that Assyria would not come into the land. The Israelites and the rest of the ancient Near East were terrified of the brutality of the Assyrians. But, and as you remember, in Jonah's one other prophecy, the one in 2 Kings chapter 14, and remember, it's, it's, it's to Jeroboam II. Right? And you remember Jeroboam II? He, he did what was evil, and this is from 2 Kings 14, verse 24. Um, you can turn there if you have your Bibles. It says, And he, Jeroboam II, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not depart from all of the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. But notice what happens, verse 25. He restored the borders of Israel from Labo Hamath, as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. Now, many times we just skip over names like this. But this is fairly significant because during this time, Jeroboam II actually expanded the kingdom of Israel. He expanded the northern borders substantially, almost as far as Solomon's borders in the north. And this was a big deal. And not only that, but during this time, Jeroboam II, there was, there was great material prosperity and wealth in the land. And notice, in addition to the material success, it was prosperous. But notice the reason for this is in verses 26 and 27. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter. For there was none left, bond or free. There was none to help Israel. But the Lord had said he would not blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. 
Now, in this passage, the bitter affliction does not lead to national repentance, as Jonah would have hoped, but God still had compassion on Israel and allowed a wicked king to relieve the oppression and bring comfort to his people, to have compassion on Israel to the extent that he completely annihilates Nineveh. You see, Nineveh at this time was was weakened. And that's why Jeroboam II was able to expand, because because Nineveh was a little bit weak at this time. But Jonah recognized that even though the nation was prospering, it was continuing to indulge in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And Jonah knew that a deserved just punishment was coming. And that the Lord had promised that this punishment would come from beyond the Euphrates. So as we look back to Jonah's complaint in verse 3, Jonah becomes aware that God's not going to destroy Nineveh. His worst fears seem to be coming true. He desires God's wrath and God's justice to be poured out on Nineveh because he he knows that will give Israel more time to turn in repentance. Jonah recognized that with God's blessing, the declining city of Nineveh would be able to recover, recover its footing, recover and become a dominant power in the region again. And Jonah cries out to God in anger against this. He desires that God wipe out the enemies of Israel. Well, after this brash and wicked reply from Jonah to God, Let's look at God's response in verses 4 and 5. And you can imagine if someone lashed out in anger and hatred against you, accusing you of things that you did not do, you could imagine how you would respond. And, And after the raging and thundering of Jonah, God responds. And ring voice from heaven wasn't an earthquake a shattering of rocks, or even in the midst of the whirlwind. But I would imagine that God spoke to Jonah in a low whisper and said, Do you do well to be angry? The response must have affected Jonah greatly. He's speechless. He doesn't have anything more to say. He cannot respond, for he cannot. For those of you wondering, he's not surprised that God responded to his prayer. That's not why he's a silent. He's silent because in his heart of hearts, he knows that he is not right. It's an interesting parallel. You can think of the other questions that that God asks throughout the Old Testament. And there are questions all over the place in the Old Testament. There's one that particularly caught my attention. It's from Genesis chapter 4. And in Genesis chapter 4, verses 3, we read this. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Here we see sort of two brothers. They're bringing their sacrifice to God. But as you can see, Abel brought a sacrifice to God the one that God required with an obedient heart. And Cain brought his own sacrifice in his own way with a disobedient heart. And the word that is used here to describe Cain's anger, it's, it's the same one 
used to describe Jonah. He was hot. Verse 6 says this, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And as you remember the next verse, this is the one where Cain rose up and murdered his brother. And then Cain flees out of the presence of the Lord to the land of Nod, east of Eden. But as God responds to Jonah, Jonah, silence, doesn't answer God's question, Jonah stalks out of the city to a hill east of Nineveh to await the destruction of of Nineveh. The parallels are fairly similar, except that Jonah does not leave the presence of the Lord. When Jonah finds a suitable place outside of Nineveh to wait and watch, hoping that the repentance of the Ninevites is short-lived and that God will soon have an opportunity to disintegrate them with fire and brimstone, Jonah builds a booth, reminiscent of the booth set that the Israelites used when they were in the, in the, in the desert, similar to the booths that were constructed on their homes during the Feast of Booths that commemorated God's miraculous deliverance of the people of Israel from the wilderness. And as we get to the end of this first section, we're going to now turn to God's response to Jonah in verses 6 through 11. As we get to this part of the story, we see that God waits patiently for Jonah to cool for a moment, and then God brings three appointments for Jonah. Each of these divine appointments drill down into the heart of Jonah to find the sin that resides there. And we see in in verse 6 that as Jonah waits in his booth for the destruction, a plant grows up to save him from his discomfort. You probably notice that in this verse there's an alternate translation. It says the plant grew up to save him from his discomfort or it could also be rendered the plant grew up to save him from his evil. And as you begin to wonder which one's better, I would suggest that perhaps both meanings are intended. And so as God appoints this plant in verse 6, it grows up up over Jonah's shelter. It provides an effective covering to shield Jonah from the rays of the burning sun. And our sunburnt prophet, hot from the sun and his anger, finds great delight in the coolness of the shade that this plant provides. The growth is miraculous. It springs up overnight. And Jonah clearly recognizes that this is a supernatural plant. It's almost as if he sees that this plant is from the Lord, and he, no doubt, is beginning to become excited about the meaning of this plant. Maybe this is a sign of God's divine favor. Maybe God has heard his reasoning and his cries have, a, have made it to the throne of God, and, and maybe God's planning to make a change. Maybe he's going to go after Nineveh after all. And there's one more small but very significant detail And it's that for for the first time in this entire story, Jonah is exceedingly glad. 
Can you think of all of the things that God has brought him through through the course of this story? Rescued from a whale or a big fish. Right? Called to him again a second time. The greatest revival in history. But it's this plant. For those of you who garden, you probably understand. But with this plant, we can see that Jonah is exceedingly glad. And you're no doubt surprised that Jonah hasn't found joy before. And it's shameful to think that this is the first time that he was glad after receiving so many blessings from the Lord. And I believe Jonah's going to use this, or the Lord's going to use Jonah's attitude here to teach him a rather memorable lesson. You see that as Jonah has stormed off in his anger, God here is beginning to display his compassion on Jonah. The text doesn't tell us what God is doing, but if we look at verse 2, if you remember, it says the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Qualities that, God, that Jonah has accused God of misusing. And, that, and as Jonah sits in his rebellion, in his booth, now shaded by God's compassion, God is showing him mercy. He's showing him grace as God pursues after the heart of Jonah. This is the first step in the argument that the Lord is presenting to Jonah. And though Jonah experiences the comfort of the plant and recognizes the supernatural appearance of the plant, we know that the kindness of God is meant to lead one to repentance. And that Jonah is about to experience a severe mercy as God realigns Jonah's heart. Verse 7, we see how God begins to do that. It says, But when, a time, when, when God came up the next day, God appointed a worm to attack the plants. After allowing Jonah a day in the shade to enjoy this plant, God appointed a worm to attack the plant that the plant might wither. The worm, careful to obey the Creator's directions, begins promptly at dawn. Possessed by a supernatural hunger, inspired by the knowledge of how to deflate a plant, the worm makes quick work of the plant. I can almost imagine Jonah awakening to the sound of chewing. As he looks around, trying to find this worm. And for those of you who have tomatoes, you know how the damage that a worm can do and how hard they are to find. And as the worm takes a giant leafy bite, you can hear the exaggerated chewing. And the sun rises higher and higher, and you begin to see the sun now filtering in through the holes in these leaves. And as the sun continues to heat the air, Jonah's plant begins to wither. Under the stress of the sun and the weakened by the worm, while the text doesn't tell us exactly how Jonah responds, we would suspect that Jonah becomes hot, literally and figuratively. With the shade of the canopy removed and the sun high in the sky, our sunburnt prophet is back to where he started. And then in verse 8, when the sun arose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down 
on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. Then God appointed this scorching east wind. Many commentators suggest that this is a wind called a Sirocco. It's a hot wind that would have blown off the Arabian desert, the desert that lay just to the east of where Nineveh is, where Jonah would have been. And between the direct sunlight, after the plant has withered, and this scorching hot wind, Jonah must have felt like he was in a convection oven, or maybe in Reading. Feeling the, effects of jo- uh, feeling the effects of God's appointed means, Jonah asks to die. After the fourth of the divine appointments that Jonah experiences, he experiences the, all these things, Jonah is ready to die. And we see here that Jonah is not painted with a brush of mockery or, or disdain, But Jonah is drawn with the pencil lines of deep and sympathetic insight into human weakness. And it's in this moment of Jonah's human weakness, as he's wishing to die, faint and wishing to die, God repeats the question of verse 4. But there's a slight change. God, God asks the question, Do you do well to be angry? For the plants? Jonah, unable to remain silent this time, bursts out, Yes! Yes, I am right to be angry, even to death. Must have been one of those times where the words sounded good in his mind, but, but as he came, they came out of his mouth and he heard himself saying these words, he's like, Oh, that's weird. to me to say it like that. But they came out nonetheless. And it was important for God to reveal to Jonah what was in his heart. Because out of the mouth, the abundance of the heart speaks. Having displayed his anger, the Lord carefully then draws a parallel for Jonah to follow. The Lord accepts Jonah's argument and he outlines it. He says, Jonah, you have pity for the plants. But you didn't water it or tend it or, or even plant it. You, you did nothing to make it grow. It, it came up overnight on its own and it perished on its own. You are angry over the destruction of this plant and if you had a choice, you would have attempted to save the plant. And Jonah was like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's what I said. And then God replies, My pity for Nineveh is like this. A, a city is, is greater than a plant. And, and, and a person is, is greater than a plant as well. And, and 120,000 persons are better than a plant too. And also cattle are better than a plan. Even these cattle, especially because they, they repented in sackcloth and ashes. Therefore, this is God speaking, therefore, when God chooses not to destroy something, it's okay, because God found value in those things. 
And then Jonah asked the question, or God asked the question, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left hand, and also much cattle? And the book of Jonah ends with this, this awkward question hanging out there. It's an unsettling way to end the story for sure. But I am sure that this writer intended to leave it this way. In fact, I'm sure if there was an ending, whether it's happy or sad, we might be tempted just to move on and go, yep, well, that's, what, that's old Jonah. But the way this story ends leaves the reader to wonder about the ending and to think about the ending. And perhaps even with an ending like this, it's not hard to insert ourselves into this story as well. But before we think about ourselves and how we relate to this story, it's important to think about why we relate to this story at all. Because as we think about the Lord not pouring out his judgment upon Nineveh, we must remember that under the Old Testament law, those who lived under it, it was only a shadow of the things to come. The law pointed to one who was much greater The law pointed to one who would be the fulfillment. And while we see the lesser Jonah was reluctant to preach to sinners, the greater Jonah willingly took on a body and came to live among sinners. And while the lesser Jonah was only a shadow of what was to come, the greater Jonah offers the perfect image. The lesser Jonah was the only, the lesser Jonah only loved and was willing to serve a specific group of people. But when Jesus came, he came so that he might draw people from every tongue and tribe and nation. And he came to fulfill the promise to Abraham that through him all of the nations of the world would be blessed. And so as we think this morning, it was the father, as he passed over the sins of Nineveh, he passed them on to his son, And it was on the cross that Jesus bore the punishment of those wicked sinners. And it was on the cross that the greater Jonah died for all who might come to him. It was the greater Jonah who obeyed perfectly, willingly. He's the one who suffered patiently and died obediently and also rose triumphantly. And now he sits at the right hand to make intercession on our behalf. It was through his death that we are made alive. And it's through Christ's work on the cross that we can begin to apply this passage to our lives. And so, let's bring a few words of application As we think of the plant and the worm and the wind, I'd like to give you three ways to potentially apply this story to your own life. First thing, first application is God gives grace to those who are undeserving. God gives grace to those who are undeserving. As the rebellious prophet languished under the hot sun, God provided a special grace of that plant 
that sprung up to shade him. Jonah looked at the plant, and there was part of him that thought that he deserved the blessing. But friends, I assure you, I assure you, there is nothing in you that deserves salvation. It was only through Christ's work on the cross, through the grace bestowed on him, by him on those who were undeserving. It was a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, who freely offers grace to all who come. And when Nineveh heard the truth of God, they repented immediately. Friends, the Ninevites saw in a mirror dimly through the testimony of an angry prophet. But now we see the beauty of Christ displayed in the pages of Scripture. For all those who trust in him, he delivers them from the domain of darkness, transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved son. He adopts us into his family so that we might be partakers of his blessings, of being and the blessings of being a child of God. For those of you who don't know Christ, come, come and see that he is good. For those of you who do, may this truth only strengthen and grow your grow you in your love and obedience for him. The second thing we can remember from Jonah is God removes comfort to direct our affections. God removes comfort to direct our affections. Four times in this book, God appoints things, creatures. He appoints a, a great fish, a plant, a worm, and a wind. We were talking in Sunday school this morning, for those of you who prefer alliteration, a whale, a weed, a worm, and a wind. But the purpose of each of these divine appointments direct the eyes of faith back to the Creator. Without the eyes of faith, each of these appointments seem to be the work of chance. But in fact, they are tender and severe mercies. As children in the family of God, we now have special relationship with the God of the universe And while it might sound cruel that God would give good gifts only to take them away, it is often true that our Heavenly Father might see fit to remove our physical, earthly comforts so that He might provide spiritual, heavenly comforts. The Father removes the comforts of this world so that we might experience the comforts of Christ. For our meeting this week, we we were reading this book by Samuel Rutherford, and this passage stuck out to me. And so I'll read it to you right now. This is from Letters of Samuel Rutherford. This is talking about someone experiencing the sweet comforts of Christ. Rutherford writes, I would not do without the sweet experience of the consolations of God for all the bitterness of affliction. Whether God come to his children with a rod or a crown, if he come himself, It is well. Welcome. Welcome, Jesus. In whatsoever way, soever. If we can get a sight of thee, and I am sure it is better to be sick, providing Christ comes to provide 
bedside comfort, to draw by the curtains and to say, Courage, I am thy salvation. Then to enjoy health, being lusty and strong, and never to be visited by God. Take courage, dear friends. Our Heavenly Father is not whimsical or capricious. He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The third thing I remind you of this morning is God desires that we see through his eyes. God desires that we see through his eyes. As Jonah lay in the oven of God's severe mercy, he turned in and was consumed by his self-pity and self-indulgence. But it, the Lord had to take Jonah to the end of himself so that he might teach him to love the people around him. For those who have experienced grace upon grace and have experienced the tender correction of the Father, we then must love others. If we truly love our Savior, we must obey his calling and see the world through his eyes. As I mentioned, the prophet or the poet Thomas Carlyle, he wrote another poem called Coming Around. It says this As Jonah stalked to his shaded seat and waited for God to come around to his way of thinking, and God is still waiting for a host of Jonas in their comfortable houses to come around to his way of loving. Brothers and sisters, it's, it took the divine appointments of a fish, plant, a worm, and a wind to bring around a self-righteous, hypocritical sinner. It was through these tender and severe mercies that the loving Father drew Jonah back to himself with the cords of kindness and the ropes of love. It is this gracious and merciful God who is slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin that has been extended to you as well. And may we say with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, But thanks be to God, who in Christ leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ. To, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance of life to life. May we this morning affirm with Jonah that salvation is of the Lord and that the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And may we who are clothed in his righteousness through his unmerited favor follow the two great commandments to love the Lord our God with our hearts, with all our soul, with all our mind, 
and the second, and may we love our neighbor as ourselves. And as we close, it's only fitting to close as the book closes with a question. Are you going to grab your bags and head to Tarshish? Or are you going to take up your cross and head to Nineveh? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we we only approach you through the work of your Son. And as we do, we are humbled before you and we ask that you continue to work in our souls. Father, may we May we learn from these lessons from Jonah. May we come to, to, to understand that it's nothing in our hands we bring, but simply to the cross we cling. May we recognize our spiritual poverty and come for you in daily dependence. Help us in this way, we ask in your name.